Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Gunturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. Hope you guys enjoy. But my grandfather would go in and out and um yeah, but I was able to be with him all the way to the end, which was really nice. Cuz that would have been my biggest regret, not to be able to see or say goodbye to my grandpa. Mm-hmm. I I couldn't I had never I don't know, I, I wouldn't I would not have been able to get through it without without seeing him. Once the trauma happened in one of your interviews, you were quoting that situation and you mentioned children uh, are the childhood when something is happening in the childhood like this, you form a cocoon and you will live there. And the person afterwards that came out and started growing is an entirely different person. We still live in that childhood reference one before this thing happened. What was the exact reference and why do you think it that way? You know, I just finished having a talk with somebody who went through that and she asked me the same question. She said, "Do you still see the little girl in you?" And I said, "No, I never saw the little girl in me." And I think that probably the cocoon lasted until I was about 18 and then once I blew it open, it's all me. So, I think that I'm still the same person I think I was up until I was 11. But the person that I don't recognize or identify is the person I became from 11 to 18 because that was a very dark person. That was somebody who was wrapped in a cocoon. That was somebody who was completely retreated from life. That was somebody who was not trying anything. That was somebody who was really I I, I mean I got to say you have to say it depressed um but you know once i came out and started swinging and fighting yeah there was no there was no going back after that the court it was a hard thing that jerry olympic did and but it was the best thing he ever did because the cocoon was gone i mean it just was like you know what no was not okay it was and you know what i think because when i came back after it happened to me I never came back and said I deserved what happened. I caused what happened. I've always looked at him as the person who was in the wrong for what he did to me as a child. I've always had a thing for that and I mean I'm I'm it I never I've never blamed myself. I've never said to myself, "Oh my god, I'm this horrible person." That's never going to happen. You used a phrase to explain that it he tooked up to me a lot. The phrase that you used to explain that specific scenario was I never saw myself as a victim. He is a felon. Yeah, he's a felon. That's how yeah. you phrased it and it, yeah. it was so true, so true. It hooked up to me so much because I've been doing this work for more than about 8 years now, 7 to 8 years now. Everybody who ever spoke to me about any such kind of a scenario, everybody say like I'm a victim at the time, I'm a survivor all this thing. But the phrase you gave is the exact actual thing that it needs to be. You're yeah. not a victim. You're not anything. That person is a felon. Yes. Yeah. He's a felon. He should Absolutely. be in jail. He should have been in jail. And he didn't. He got to live a very long life and he got to live a life in my life. He took my life because of the fact of the actions that he did and the actions that I had to take to get away from him. I lost the ability to be able to spend time with my family. I lost Christmases and birthdays and 
social gatherings. And I mean, I have a huge side of the family on my dad's side. It's a Cuban side. I mean, 4th of July was a big deal because it was my grandfather's birthday. We'd have 50 to 100 people. My Christmases were insane. I mean, it was just all the kids and, you know, my grandmother cooking. I lost all of that. And no, I, yeah. So, yeah, no, he's a felon. He's, he's a thief. He's all kinds of stuff. He's a bad person. I'm sorry. He's a bad person. Absolutely. True. Yeah. Yeah. Never going to apologize for that. Like, no, he's a bad person. And he died of bone cancer. So I don't know. I heard that it was very painful. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about it, but I'm just thinking, man, what a way to go, huh? Long, slow, painful death. About your relationship, you mentioned you started loving yourself again and you become a different person once you fell in love in your 20s. Though you were loving yourself and learned a lot, why do you think that relationship never lasted? With what? With that person? Uh, you know, that was the wrong person. That was, uh, that was the guy that, and every girl has this guy that comes along and breaks you into a million pieces and you never recover. That was that guy for me. And it was unfortunate because at the time he came along in my life, I was involved in the court case and I was drowning and I was looking for something to hold on to. And I never really saw him. I saw an idea, a potential, um, somebody I wished he could be, but I never really saw him. So, you know, and I, I actually think that it was my anchor. I think I latched onto him hoping that he was going to be able to save me. And so, I, you know, I never got past the whole idea of being in love, being unconditionally in love, which doesn't exist. Um, I'm sorry, I do have conditions. Um, I'm not Jesus, but, um, you know, it's like, uh, but I mean, it's like, he was just the wrong guy. And I, he, man, he, he got, and then it started, it just got to be where he got to be cruel. And, um, you know, I, why he needed to be cruel, I'll never know, but, you know, he's got to live with that. But he took me out of darkness. So for that, I can never, um, I can never repay him for that because he did, he took me out of darkness and he brought light into my life. He brought adventure and he brought fun, but it came in a, it came at a very heavy price. It was pain a lot of pain um but what i what he did show me was what i was never going to tolerate ever again <laughs> and haven't <laughs> so um but i will say this i've never loved anybody the way i loved him oh so and i was never and i've never been the girl with anyone that i was with him so but i you know like i said i who i loved didn't really exist because, you know, I, I didn't see him. I didn't, because if I had really saw him, I would have never fallen in love with him. He wasn't, he just, I, but I was so caught up in the idea. 
And maybe I needed that. Maybe I needed that fantasy. Maybe it was something that was bringing something really great into my life. And I was willing to go through the pain to come out on the other side. And I did. And the gentleman that I ended up seeing after him was the one that really cemented love. I mean, like it was no games. It was communication. It was friendship. It was love. But at the end, after about six years, we just, we realized that we had nothing in common anymore. We'd actually, but we loved each other. So what do you do? You know, I mean, we were doing so many things with other people. Um, you know, he didn't like to do any of the activities I like to do. So I went with my girlfriends and I didn't like to do anything he liked to do. So he would go out with his guy friends and then we'd come together in the middle. And it was sort of like, you know, we need to end this before we go bad. And I think he probably would feel the same way about me. I think he would say the same thing. And I, I actually think that everybody that I had a relationship after Dale, I think would say the same thing. It ended mutually. We have nothing but great memories about each other and we shared something really nice, but it just didn't end, you know, it didn't go on. And that's probably because of me. I'm sure of it. It's probably, <laughs> I'm sure it was because of me. <laughs> You mentioned that it is important to go back onto every relationship in life and reflect on it to move forward. Why do you think it is important to reflect on every relationship, every moment to actually move forward? You know, I don't know if you should spend a lot of time on, on looking back at relationships, but one of the things I think people need to understand is that you are a different person in every relationship. Yes. Because people bring out different sides of you. So some people are going to bring out, uh, for example, Dale brought out a, a romantic side of me. I mean, I was in romance. I mean, I was like leaving flowers or writing books and dedicating music videos to him. He brought out that side of me to where I was comfortable doing that. But then, you know, other relationships, you know, didn't bring out that side of me. Does that mean that they weren't romantic? No, they were great romantic, but it brought out a different side of me. And so I think that it's, it's good to look back, but recognize that you are gonna be a different person because as you get older, you bring life experiences into it. So I, it's not possible for me to be the same person I was when I was 21 in a relationship now because I got my life. I'm at 30 years old, 30 years older and I need, I, so I, don't spend too much time looking back, but if you've done things, if you're repeating the same patterns over and over and over again, and they're negative patterns, then you've got to look back. But if you're having great relationships, they're just, you know, running their courses and both of you are walking away mutually, I think that's a success. But, you know, especially if you're like me, who never wanted to get married. So what's, what's the result going to be? Um, you know, don't beat yourself up. Every, every relationship, and sometimes some relationships make you feel jealous. Um, I don't, you know, I've never been in a relationship. The first one, yeah, I was jealous, but that's because he was pitting me in with another girl and I'm 21 years old. I don't know really how to handle it. I mean, now I would just be like, uh, I gotta go. You know, I'm like, I gotta go. This is, you know, you just don't have time to, you know, but at 21, you're caught up in the drama of it. Like, oh my God, I've got to win him. Well, you know, maybe if I do this, I can change his mind and he's going to realize that I'm the one he wants to be with. 
But, you know, what I always tell everybody is that, you know, your heart tells you who you want to be with. Everybody knows. And you just have to, just, you have to figure out why your heart is choosing that person. And if it's choosing that person for all the wrong reasons, and you've got to do some really seriously deep soul searching. Because if you're, if you're seeking out people that are toxic and are treating you poorly, then at your core, you deserve, then you feel you deserve that. And it's got nothing to do with that other person. It's all about you at that person, at that point. That's when you need to look back. But if you've had relationships and everybody's happy and you've moved on and then that, don't look back, keep going, find a new one. You said you were working with children. What kind of a work do you do with the children? Why is the children? Yeah. I did. Yes. Um, I was a CASA. I was a court appointed social advocate for abused children. It's a program that's run out of the juvenile court system. And what it is, is that if you take the number of kids that are in the foster care system in California, I don't even know what the number is now, but when I was working in, it was over 75,000 kids were in foster care. Foster care is very different than what people think it is. It is not people living in a family. Nine hundred out of ten, these children are living in, in what they call institutions, which are orphanages, but just done better. You know, you're sharing a room with five to ten guys and or girls, and you're living in a gated facility that you can't leave. So um, that's an institution. Um, so what they decided to do was they started appointing people that were CASAs and you would, it's a, an actual program. I think it's across, I'm pretty sure it's national and in every city. And you go through probably about 60 to 70 hours of training of how to work with these kids. Um, in my case, I was their educational surrogate and I was also their um, just regular surrogates. So I was taking care of their schooling needs and what they were going through in class. I dealt with a lot of their medication issues and um, what kind of medication they were getting. Um, and I did that for probably about 14 years. And I think coming from the abuse situation that I came from, not having a family that supported me, um, the kids understood me, I understood them. And I was able to really navigate that very well with them. Um, there are lots of rules in the CASA system. Um, number one is that you can't bring these kids into your family. Um, your time with them is to be your time with them alone, uh, doing activities. Um, they want you to make sure that you're not crossing boundaries and making them confused and that you're actually there to be there for them. And, you know, your first instinct always is going to be, oh, my God, I need to bring this kid home. And I want to, you know, I want to show him how happy. And, and it's really not, you need to start going through their family dynamics. And one of the things that I've always said is that these kids are not going to make it in life unless one parent loves them. When you have both parents that don't love you, it's very difficult to navigate that through your teenage years. And so as a CASA, you're writing court reports, you're appearing in front of judges, you're working with the lawyers, the social workers. The CASAs are a very, very important part of the equation of the foster care system. The lawyers and the social workers will all look to the CASAs 
for what they're seeing because the system is so overrun that one lawyer could have 300 kids. They can't, you know, they're not able, um, they can't spend the resources that they would need in terms of getting these kids therapy or um, the right medications or do they need to be on medications? A lot of them have behavior problems and the way to do quick solving of that is usually by medication, even though they don't need to be on medication, they probably just need therapy. Um, but I did that for probably close to almost 12 years into my thirties and it was very rewarding. Um, I got very close to my kids and they're all grown now. You mentioned your thirties is a dormant stage. Why is that? Oh, what stage? Dormant stage. Dormant? Uh-huh. I think, you know, I think the thirties, you kind of coast, you know, you figured it out in your twenties, your thirties, you're starting to get settled. You're starting to figure out, okay, twenties weren't so bad. You know, I made it through. There was some scrapes and some pain. But your 30s, you're getting into your careers, you're starting to figure out what you want to do in life. And, you know, one of the most important lessons I learned about your 20s is nobody knows this, is that you make life altering decisions in your 20s and you don't even know it. You look back and you just think, Jesus, what the hell was I thinking when I made that decision? Um, your 30s, and I think that the reason that, um, I call my 30s is, you know, my 30s was peaceful. I came out of my teenage years, the courts, worked everything out with my family, and I started to kind of coast into my 30s. And so I think 30s were my dormant years. Hmm. Just peace, you know, living my life, moving on. Yes. While you're working with the children itself, you mentioned uh, you found your purpose. What is your purpose that you think right now? Well, I think back then, um, working with the kids was to help the kids. I needed to fight for the kids. So I know what I wanted somebody to have done for me, and they didn't do it. So being able to be a CASA and get in there and actually fight for these kids really was my purpose um, at the time. And I, the reason that I stopped doing being a CASA was because I stayed with one of my kids all the way through his uh, early adolescence. And so my time became devoted to getting him, you know, situated and try to have a successful life, even though he had everything stacked against him. And um, that took me all the way through my 20s. He unfortunately passed away um, unexpectedly about, I want to say maybe four years ago. And um, that was a hard one. And he's a hard one because, you know, I had to make a decision. He was in the foster care system and he was fantasizing that his parents were these really great parents and his parents were not these really great parents. And he was always fantasizing that his parents were gonna come back. And I was noticed and I, I found his mom and he had always asked me not to find his mom. He'd always said, I don't want to find her. I don't know. I don't want to know anything about her. But I went back and I looked at the court records and his mom literally lived two blocks around the corner from him and where he was living. And he was in an institution and she lived. So I got on the phone and I called her one day and I went over to see her and 
she and I talked for a few minutes and she was working at Burger King. She was clear. She was not doing meth. And I decided that I was going to do something that changed the course of everybody's life. And that was going to be that I was going to bring her back into the situation. And I, I live with a 50, 50 regret on that. And she came back into the situation within a year. He was reunited with her. He went to go live with her. They moved out of San Diego went back to um, Illinois and she threw him out his junior year of high school. He was living on the streets. And at that time, I didn't have a phone number for him because nobody, I didn't know how to get a hold of him in Ohio because he had stopped communicating with me, but he had gone to a library, found an old email that I had, and he sent me an email letting me know what had happened to him and that he was living on the streets. And I just happened to randomly check this old email a couple of months after he had left that message. And I was able to get him back to San Diego. And from that point, it was a struggle. But one of the things that stayed with him was he needed to finish school. So even when he was living in a ditch back in Ohio, he still went to school every day. And I was able to get his transcripts and put him into college. Everybody rallied around him. Everybody loved him. They wanted him to succeed. And his mom felt so guilty about what she had done. But at the same time, he was acting out and he was creating a really bad environment at the house. And quite frankly, she had never raised him. So she didn't know what it was like to be a mom. So the easy fix was throw him out. You know, I mean, she, she didn't have a skill set. And um, when he died, she and I basically connected. And I knew that she had regrets about everything. And she sent me a note one day and she said, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to him was you and you coming into his life. And I look back on that and it's like, had I not brought her in, he would have finished in the foster care system. I could have gotten the state to pay for all of his college education and he could have had a chance. And I, you know, but at the same time, he told me he was so happy a week before he died that everything that I had done and, and that he was happy with the way it all worked out and then he had gone and spent the summer with his dad and that he was so happy he had done that. And I said, you know, come home to San Diego. You can come live with me. We'll get, you know, and what he was doing at that time was he was, because we did a lot of nonprofit work together, he and I, he and seven friends had a school bus and they were driving up and down the state of California, feeding the homeless out of the school bus. And I just kept saying, you know, I need you to be, you know, you need that back in school. We need to do something. And he's like, but I'm so happy. I'm so happy where I'm at. And so I said, okay. So, you know, we talked all every, all the time on Facebook. And so he went out to the store to go get some groceries and the car he was driving, the brakes let out and he crashed into a tree and he died instantly. And so it was sort of like his mom, his dad have all this guilt, but at least I know, you know, I, I have guilt there too, because 
the decision that I made changed the course of his life. I don't know if it was for better or for worse. It was probably a little bit of both. Um, but I think that, um, you know, I, like I say, everybody makes life altering decisions. Sometimes you don't even know it until it's, until it's too late. And there's nothing you can do about them. I mean, the decisions have already been made. The course has already been set. It's already been chartered. But um, I tell kids sometimes when I'm talking to young adults, they'll ask me like, you know, you have any advice in your 20s? And I said, have fun, man. You're gonna make tons of mistakes and you're gonna spend your 30s and your 40s going back over going, why did I do that? And then your 50s, you're gonna go, whatever. And then you're gonna move on. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be known as work in progress until I die. What is in progress right now? You know what it is? I think somebody said to me one day, what's the most important thing in life? And of course, I always say money. But, um, and I do mean that. <laughs> I'm not even <laughs> lying when I say that. It is money. Um, but more, it's interest. Interest in life. Um, I think the person that has no interest in life, you know, give, let go. I mean, just, you know, give up now because an interest in life uh, of an interest in love, an interest in family, an interest in friends and an interest in adventure, an interest in um, going places and doing new things and talking to people and being a different way. I, I think next to your health. I mean, if I had to say the most important thing really in life is health, I mean, then go to money, then go, you know, love. Okay. <laughs> but it's like, um, but I think a work in progress until the day you die is having interest in life. And that's where I want to be. I want to be interested in everything in life. I want to go for it. I want to try. I want to if I fail, I fail spectacularly. Oh, well, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, okay, psh, psh, I'm not, I'm on to the next failure, you know, but at least I gave it a shot and um, I'm okay with that. I'm, I love that phrase, work in progress until the day I die. Cause then I just get to learn everything and, and everything's new. And I mean, that's a really great thing, a great place to be if you're in life in your fifties and you're still learning new stuff. And you're still trying out new things and you're still charting new territories. And um, I, I like that. That's, that's my mantra. So what is in progress right now towards your work? Um, well, I am, I just recently formed a production company with um, the actress Sherry Belafonte. And we are, we have probably about four or five projects that are underneath that production company that we're working at that are in different stages. Um, I can't go into that. No one ever goes into anything until it's actually official. And that's a new stage. You know, it's like I, before that I was a publicist and I was a very good publicist for, and I still work in the media. I still do a lot of stuff uh, for clients that I have, um, but I'm, I'm heading into a new chapter. So here is, I'm in my fourth year of doing publicity. <laughs> now I'm heading into <laughs> producing films and TV. And stuff. it's like, and you know what? And I, I, what I have found too, which is really interesting, is everybody's always like, don't ask questions. I'm like, I am a question asker. 
I mean, I don't care if it sounds like a stupid question. When I am talking to executives or people who are on the other side, production houses, I'm like, you need to make me understand it. So you need to talk to me like I'm a five-year-old so I understand it. Because if I can't understand it, then it doesn't make any sense, then something's not right. And uh, I have found that people generally respond very well when you say, when you ask some questions to explain a process or um, something. I have never had somebody go, oh my God, don't ask me, Google it. Um, that's, that's never happened. So I always ask away, you know, ask questions. If you're going to be involved in stuff, then you need to, you know, and especially if there's multiple people involved, there's multiple people hearing the same thing but could be hearing it in different ways. So um, one of the things I'm really known for is that after every call, I do emails out to everybody. This was said, this was said, this was said, this is where we're moving. Um, I, I've been told by multiple executives that I am both by far the most thorough person that they've ever worked with. <laughs> but awesome. this way there's no, you know, there's no guessing, no assumptions, no nothing. And, um, so my work in progress, I, I, I guess I'm hitting my five-year five uh, mark to do something different. <laughs> I was about to say, you're very close to that then. I am close, you know, but if the pandemic, I would have probably done it a little bit earlier if it hadn't been for the whole United States shutting down for a year and a half. But So what can we expect in the roadmap next? I'm sorry, what? What can we expect in the roadmap, upcoming one? You know, I, I really don't know. And I'm okay with that. You know, like I'm okay with just kind of seeing what happens and let it kind of come to me. I mean, of course I'm out there working on these projects. Of course I'm out trying to get media and publicity from my clients. And of course I'm, you know, for every project that Sherry and I are working on, there are things that need to be done that I'm, I'm, I'm making sure they're getting done. But I'm actually really enjoying sitting back and watching stuff come to me for me to digest it and to sort of kind of learn from and go, is this where I want to be or is this not where I want to be? And if it's not where I want to be, then I'll, I'll go do something different. And, you know, one of the things that I realized, my dream was always to be a fashion designer. It was never any other dream other than to be a fashion designer. My dad had a clothing store in La Jolla that was one of the most successful stores in the United States for close to 20 years. And I never once designed a single piece of garment to go into that store. And my dad used to beg me, design something. I'll put it in the window. I'll, I'll do something. And I never, ever did it. And I started working for a magazine in Paris. And I got a chance to go to Paris Fashion Week with, with one of my all time, you know, still can't even talk about it to this day, which is the greatest, it was the greatest experience of my life. And I realized sitting in the audience, watching the designs that were coming down the runway that I was never that good. I was never that designer. I was never that creative. It wasn't my life. And I have friends of mine that are fashion designers and it comes out of their eyes and their hands and all of that when they're talking. And I was in heaven and hell at the same moment of being on that and realizing the reason that I never did do it is because I always knew I was never going to be that good. 
And if I had done it and failed, then I would never have had a dream. I would have no other dream. And I told my dad that, and he was just like, wow, I never really thought about it like that way, you know, but it was sort of like, and I came back from there realizing I would have been much better doing the business side of, of, of a design house. Cause that's really where my forte is. That's really where my interest is. It's not in creating the fabrics and making these pretty dresses though. I like all that. Um, but I, I just didn't understand my dream hmm. till I was faced with my dream and what the reality of my dream would look like and what I would need to give up in order to be that person. I would have to live it 24 seven eight days, you know, seven days a week. And I just, I, I'm not built for that. My interests are in too many different places. I don't know if there's something that I can ever devote 100% of my attention to. You know, I know. So that's why you become a work in progress until the day you die. Like you're learning still, like where am I, where's my interest going to be? I need it to be in multiple places. I can't, I can't be in one place only. I'm not suited for it. For your fashion designing, coming to that, you mentioned uh, your first fashion designing, sorry, fashion show was a disaster. <laughs> God. What yeah. happened to that? Uh, my God. Let's see. The girl that it started with the girl that I was doing the fashion show with, for some strange odd reason, didn't like me and didn't publicize me as being part of the fashion show. So all of the marketing that was done, she never thanked me, never mentioned me, didn't really want to have anything to do with me, but yet she asked me to be in the show with her. So there was nothing I could do about that. So that was happening. Then the girl that was going to make my outfit showed up at my fashion show crying, broke down because she didn't know how to sew. She had lied to me, taken all my money to design my outfit. So this was all happening on the day of my fashion show. The curtain fell on me um, <laughs> during rehearsals. The whole curtain backdrop fell on me. And I just, you know, I just wanted to die after the fashion show. Now, if you would ask anybody who was in the audience, they would tell you it was a huge success. They had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. But for me, I just wanted to die. I just, just get me out of there. I didn't want to walk out. I was afraid people weren't going to like my designs. Um, it was just, it was just, <laughs> just, you know, like, oh my God, you know, and I remember right after it was over with, I started to cry and my clients for my company were my models. So I didn't have regular models. I had my friends and things like that. So the clothes were like all different shapes and sizes. They were custom made from my model, from my friends. And one of my friends said, Stacy, you got to do another one. And I said, are you crazy? I will never do another one as long as I live. I'm done. This is never going to happen. And I did another one six months later. <laughs> <laughs> they forced me into it, got me off my couch. And I did another one six months later. And by all accounts to everybody, it was a huge success. I mean, the Padres got involved. I got gifts from uh, plastic surgeons because I had uh, media exposure. So I was able to get my press release 
and I donated 100% of the proceeds to Voices for Children and another foster care system. So my tickets were 70, 80 bucks. And I actually had a sit down dinner for everybody at the fashion wow. show. I mean, it was really ambitious. I look back on that now and I think to myself, I would never do that again, ever. You know, I was like, never. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of people, it was renting a venue. It was, I mean, the expenses of it were just enormous um, on how to do it. Everybody had fun. Um, yeah, it was, my second one was much better, but I, I really have no interest in that. I, it's really weird. I did that for probably about four or five years. I did the primetime Emmys. I went twice, had my models in the audience wearing my designs. I got a chance to have my, one of my dresses on the Oscars. Um, I did the Miss California pageant. And then my dad said something to me and he said, are you going to do this for real? And I said, well, yeah, I'm going to do it for real. And he said, then do it for real. Make it a career. Learn what it means to be a fashion designer. Learn how to get into the stores. Learn about merchandising and distribution. And when I started getting into all that, I realized that everything that I was doing was making a really great time for everybody involved but on my dime. I wasn't really going anywhere. I was just doing custom dresses and all that kind of stuff. And I realized that wasn't what I... That wasn't what I wanted to do. And that was okay. You know what I mean? Like I did my dream. I went into it and I came out on the other side realizing it's not my dream anymore. Maybe when I was 20, it was my dream, but at 40, it's not. So I got, I had, had to find another dream. What is your dream right now? I would like to be a producer of really good documentaries. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Just, you know, I, I, I really, I love documentaries and I've been watching a lot of documentaries and I am in awe of the people that actually produce documentaries because I know how much work is going into it. But, you know, I'm the research, the story, trying to navigate and try to tell some, you know, that's, I mean, to me, that storytelling in its finest when you are dealing with real live incidents. Um, and I just always thought, man, I, there's, you know, of course I love true crime horror stuff. So I like all the Night Stalker, the Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, the son of Sam. I mean, like the minute it's gonna drop, I'm in front of my TV, I'm ready to watch it. And I just, it takes, it's years and years and years of work and no pay, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so, you know, I always, my rule of thumb is that your job has to fund your lifestyle. And until your dream can fund your life, it's, then it can't, then you need to have a job. You need to have something because yes. there's nothing worse than being in your dream and being what I call in survival mode, because you start making all the wrong decisions when you're in survival mode. And I see it time and time again. So it's sort of like I, you stay in, you stay focused, pay your bills and try to live your life and, and make your dream. And if your dream is meant to be what it's gonna be, it's gonna come, you know, it's, it, it may take five years, it may take a year, it may take 10 years, it may take 40 years. 
You don't know, but at the same time, you can't let your life suffer trying to find your dream. And so I, I, you know, people just, and I think you learn that as you get older. And that's one of the things that life does for you as you get older, because in your twenties, you're like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Um, but in my forties, you know, you got a mortgage, you got a house, you got cars, you got the kind of things that you need to have. You want to go out with your friends. You want to travel and all that costs money. And, you know, and then funding your dream at the same time. So you better be making more money over here to be able to fund the dream and your life. So that's, that would be my, uh, that's how you become a work in progress too. <laughs> so what, what are you planning to have this documentary based on? You know, I don't know. I, this is just something that kind of is in my head, but um, I have no idea. So it is still I was approached. I've, I've been approached by somebody with a very interesting idea. And I'm going to talk to her about it this week, but it's somebody who was a victim of sexual abuse. She has the actual tape of the police confession of this person describing the sexual abuse. And I, she wants me to do a documentary using that tape. And I, I, legally, I'm not sure um, that you can do that without their release, um, or if it's part of the public domain, I don't know. But that kind of intrigues me on doing a documentary based on that tape. Like as the person's talking, going back over, you know, where this person was at the age that this stuff was happening, you know, with video, with photos and, and stuff like that and how the person changed. And um, I don't know, that intrigues me. That, that actually intrigued me. I, I don't know where I'm gonna do, I don't know what I'm gonna do with that. that that's like, you know, like I said, it's like once your head starts going in a, in a direction, she saw my documentary, The Journey to Myself, and she reached out to me. And when she told me she had the tape, it was like a light bulb just went on because I don't think I've ever seen a tape of anyone describing yep. I just, I've never seen that. So um, I don't know. That might be like a, something I'm thinking about. Now that the painful little girl at 11 year old met the successful Stacy, how does that feel like? I guess you have to decide what your definition of success is. My next question is what is your success? So yes, then start with that and answer this question. How do you define success for yourself? You know, I think accepting the scars that came out of what happened to me and learning to live with them would be a success. So accepting the fact that I am somebody who can do detachment, I'm fine with it now. Uh, accepting the fact that I'm somebody who has boundaries, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with not having to hug and hold hands and kiss people and, and, that I don't know. I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, I'm fine with telling people if they're in my space. Uh, I'm fine with communicating. Um, I'm, I'm, and I've, I've learned to celebrate the strong fighter in me. So I, I, think that's, I think that's what success is, is being able to live with your scars. And really, if you're looking for a lifelong partner, getting married is finding the person that 
loves you, is willing to live with those as well and understands. You know, that doesn't mean that you have the right to be cruel to somebody or treat somebody poorly, but it just means that they understand them, don't hold them against you. And if they feel that you are stepping over the bounds of, and just say something, that they feel comfortable enough to say something to you, like, is this coming from, you know, back when this situation happened to you? Is this a trigger? Because everybody needs to know what their triggers are. Everybody's got triggers. Now, for me, the word maybe is a trigger. Hmm. And it was in my relationship with Dale, he always used the word maybe. And to me, maybe is a game. It's a neither yes or a no. And it's meant to keep you in a perpetual state of just always wondering. Yep. You're never allowed to focus or anything. So when people start saying maybe to me, I don't accept maybes. I'm like, I, I don't want to hear maybe. I said, if you say maybe to me, I'm taking it as no and I'm going a different direction. So, you know, but that's a trigger and that's in the, and knowing that that's a trigger because sometimes you are going to get a maybe. Yep. Sometimes it's not always a yes and a no. So it's knowing what your triggers are and people that love you know what those triggers are as well. Sometimes you might have people that'll use them against you <laughs> just to set you off. Like my brother, that's okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'll bring him up later. You know what I mean? It's like every brother and sister knows the triggers and they know them for life. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, they know him for life. You know, like my brother has said to me, you look just like dad. Boy, that's a bad one. That's a trigger. <laughs> You're just like dad. You know, like, oh, what? You know, then you start fighting, but it's like everybody knows their triggers. So I think that's, for me, the definition is knowing what my scars are and being able to live with them. And hoping that my mistakes are few and not a lot. I don't want to have a lot of regrets at the end of my life. I only want to have a few if I can. <laughs> Relationship-wise, you mentioned, uh, I, I want somebody who can embrace my scars and celebrate my damage. What does that mean? You know, it's the same of what I just said. It's somebody understanding that I have boundaries. You know, one of the things that I thought was very interesting, I have a group of, of female friends that I've had for probably 20 to 25 years. They're big huggers. I'm not a hugger, right? But over the last two years, I've made it a point to start hugging them and kissing them. Just to kind of see... Oh, what there. would happen, you know, like how, how that would, you know, because they've always accepted the fact that I was never the hugger or the kisser, but they still would always come at me, you know, like, we love you, we're gonna hug you, you know, I mean, and be like, oh my God, a hug, you know, <laughs> and I started to finally decide, you know, what? I'm gonna give this a shot, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna try this, and just kind of going into it, and kind of pushing a little bit of my boundaries, you know, not not doing a whole lot of my boundaries, but feeling comfortable enough. And it's finding the people that you trust enough to do that with. Mm. So, you know, they have to accept you as well, but it's you have to accept putting it out there and trying it and seeing what happens with them. And I think that's a big, I think that's, that's what I mean by anyone. I mean, it could be a female friend. It could be somebody I'm in a relationship with. It could be my family. 
but it's finding people that are okay and celebrating, you know, my fighting spirit and, you know, okay, so you've got boundaries. Well, we're going to respect that. And, you know, this is how we have a relationship and we move forward from there. And then, you know, kind of mix it up a little bit. It's kind of fun. Test the waters. What is your weakness? Strengths I can figure out throughout the interview, actually. So if I have to ask, like, what kind of a weakness do you have? Even a funny weakness that you have? You know, I think the biggest weakness, I, one of my weaknesses was always being that I had to be in control. And I think that's a weakness. Okay. I think the, if you have to always be in control of everything, you are missing out on all the stuff that can be coming at you because you're not embracing and opening it. That was a big thing for me to learn. And I didn't learn that until I was in my, my mid-40s. So learning and letting go of the control. But one of my biggest weaknesses, I think, is that I don't respect weakness. And I have a very hard time respecting people that are very weak. And um, I have really had to work on that over the last 30 to 40 years to recognize that not everybody's going to come at the situation the same way I come at the situation. And sometimes what I perceive as a weakness, it's not really a weakness. It's maybe they're being courageous in a different way than I'm, that I view courageous. And I, I actually really think that takes time. That takes wisdom. That takes years of being in situations to recognize, but I, in my twenties and my thirties, I was hard on people, but I was hard on myself. And um, I did not respect weakness. And I think that was a, a big weakness of mine. And I think that probably comes back to empathy. It was not having empathy for the situation that they were going through or only seeing things my way and seeing like, why aren't you handling this the way I would handle it? You need to do this and you need to do that. You know, like to me, I saw the clearest way possible, but that may not be their way. And so I've learned with my friends and again, that's family and friends, watching them go through their situations and just being supportive. Yep. Even if you think they're making the wrong decision. And sometimes I do, but that doesn't mean I love them any less. That doesn't mean I, you know, it, we have a rule with me and my girlfriends, uh, when we get together, um, we can have laughter, we can have tears, we can ask for help, we can do anything. There's no judgment in our circle. So, um, and I, I try to live by that. I really, really struck, I mean, like, to, because I've had to fight. And so to me, when I see people that aren't, when I think they're not fighting, fighting. and sometimes walking away is fighting. Yep. Sometimes that is the greatest thing you can do is to walk away. And, you know, and I'm always like, no, you get in there and you, you know, gonna do that. And I, I just, I learned in my forties, so I, I would think that's one of my biggest weaknesses is not having enough empathy um, for what other people might be going through. Finally, one, one more question. What do you say to the people that are having these kind of similar stories that are not able to come out? You and I are talking about our story uh, for whatever the reasons that we chose. Yes, we decided to come out with our story and we are celebrating our strength or anything. But there are a lot of people that they don't want to talk about their story at all, but still suffering silently behind the door. So what do you say to that kind of people? 
you have one life to live. If we get a do-over, you don't even know it. So what you choose to do in this life is your choice. You can either make it, one of my favorite lines was, you have two choices in life. You can either make a chicken shit or chicken salad. The choice is yours. <laughs> and I, you know, I can't, I, I don't know had Jerry Olympic done what he had done if I would have done it. So it's hard for me to, I think eventually somewhere down the road, maybe I would have done it. I'm not, I'm not sure I would have done it at 18 or 19. Um, but those were the cards I was dealt with. Everybody's going to have to figure out what kind of life they want to live. And, you know, I live under the assumption that we got one life to live. And I just, I, I don't want it to be, I want my life to be a good life. I, I can't let one incident define my entire life. If I live to be 80, let's say 89 years old, and this one summer, it's going to take over all 89 years of that life. It's just, it can't happen. I'm not going to let it do it. So, um, you know, I want to have good experiences. I want to have friends and family and loved ones and travel and all that kind of stuff. And it, unless you want that, you're going to be where you're at. So it's, it's, what do you want for life? And they have to make that decision themselves. I always hope that people get the courage to get out of it. That's, that would be my hope. Um, nothing worse than staying in it because it doesn't do any good for anybody. And so I, uh, yeah, I, that's a, that's a hard one because I, I can't be in their shoes. I don't know what their situation's at. I don't know if they may get killed if they come out. So you could die coming out. Um, you just have to decide whether or not it's worth dying over. Do you want to stay in it, die in it, or do you want to stay in it fighting to get out of it? Okay, thank you for tuning in. And you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.